whoever's praying for rain, you can stop. <laughs> Just, I know some of you farmers want more rain, but I don't even think Noah wanted that much rain. I was looking out in the parking lot and was reminded one Labor Day I came in to, to do something menial and we had just started working on this part of the, the facility. And as I come down the hallway towards the kitchen from the original building, I saw this stream of brown mud and water coming through the fellowship hall and out the front door. And in that moment, honesty here prevailing, I had to wrestle with, well, do I just go home and tell anybody I didn't really see it? <laughs> you know, hey, who would know, right? Well. Me and God would know, so the way it was, the trustees and a bunch of folks come up and we cleaned and sucked water out of the fellowship hall and scraped mud out of the parking lots and yeah, it was, it was ugly, but that was enough rain. That was one of those hundred year storms that three of them in a row, so I don't know if that was the first 300 years or the next 300 years. I want to thank the deacons for serving us communion this morning and Serving communion is a lot like doing a wedding. Everybody thinks they understand exactly how weddings work until it's time to put one together. And then everybody has a different idea and it's kind of confusing. So our deacons did a great job and I am appreciative of their labors and their efforts uh, to serve us in the way that they did. It speaks volumes to me to watch men serve and to do it with such an open and glad heart. Um, it just, it just shows me that God is still very much at work in our midst. This morning, we're going to go to the 93rd Psalm. And I didn't get the opportunity to preach the shortest psalm in the Bible, like Pastor Andy did, take the easy one. But I chose, I chose a, a fairly short one at that, and that's the 93rd Psalm. It's not long by any means, but it is certainly deep. It has great truth in it. It speaks to us on so many levels. And I want to take an opportunity for us to read it together. I believe that it's going to appear on the screen behind us. And that's the majesty of the way our world works now. The 93rd Psalm. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice, and the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, I stand here this morning and I am acutely aware of my sins, acutely aware of my failures. Absolutely bare bones right to it, Lord, you know my heart. And I take comfort in that. And I know I take comfort in knowing that you know everybody's heart in this room. You know those that have come just for show and those of us that have come to learn. Lord, I'd ask this morning that you would bring us all to the point of desiring to know you better. May we know you better through your word. May we know you better through service and through experience. Lord, I'd ask today that you would put aside these stammering lips and allow me to be the vessel that you have created me to be. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. 
How many of you are golf fans? Okay, you can raise your hands. I didn't ask if you played good golf. I just said, are you fans? So I was watching a golf match on TV the other day between some pro golfers coupled with some quarterbacks. And by the way, Calvin, you were right. Yep, you were right. My guy lost. Of course, I was rooting for Mickelson, and that doesn't surprise me. So Phil Mickelson and the greatest quarterback that ever lived, Tom Brady, I'm not a Brady fan, but you got to give him credit where it's due, was playing against a guy named Bryson DeChambeau, who sounds like he should be a hockey player, and that guy from Green Bay called Aaron Rodgers. Okay? Four phenomenal athletes, no matter how you put it together, in their own field, those four guys are top-notch. But they were playing on a golf course in all, in all, all places, Montana. Not exactly what I would have considered a mecca for the golf world. Matter of fact, I wasn't even so sure they had golf courses in Montana. I know I looked once at how many golf courses were in the country of Estonia, and there are more of them within 15 minutes drive from this place than there are in that entire country. So I watched with great interest, and the course was magnificent, as you can imagine. Um, fairways were beautiful. They looked to me like they were also narrow, and the background was, to say the least, magnificent. And I kind of laughed because they had a 777-yard par 5, which, in case you're wondering, for those of you that are into the metric system, is 710 meters. That's for you younger folks. Um, can you write my own? Well, it's 2,300 feet, almost a half a mile, and eh, 0.4 miles. And in my calculations, that's about seven golf balls and probably an hour, okay? <laughs> and they were talking about how these big athletes could get their ball there after the second hit. And I'm like, there's no way on the face of God's green earth I could do that. But in the background, they showed these magnificent peaks, these snow-covered peaks and these lust forest areas that, by the way, had bears in them. So when you hit your ball out of bounds, I'd pretty much just write that one off, okay? I don't go in the woods because of poison ivy. I'm certainly not going to go in there because of bears. It's a golf ball. They make them by the thousand and sell them by the box full. They have these sweeping vistas and these deep drop-offs. And, and as you watched, you just couldn't help but, but marvel how beautiful this course was. And, and in Montana, of all places, it was inspiring, or dare I say, even majestic. I wondered as I watched it, is this a dim reflection of the beauty and majesty of our God? You know, we see God dimly. We, we don't understand all there is about him. We see flashes of, of him in, in our nature. We see flashes of his glory and his majesty in certain things to our lives. But we'll never fully grasp the true majesty that is in God, that God commands, that is part of his very nature. And, I, and I'm hesitant to use the word majestic when I describe anything that is here on earth, because let's face it, we only look at the external. How many of you ever watched a, a royal wedding? I'm not really into the royals either. Frankly, that's why we left England. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the bride's coming down the aisle and she's got a train that goes out about 100 yards and people that carry it and the queen's sitting there and got her crown or hat on, whatever it is. And, and, and we see all this majesty and we see all this pomp and circumstance and we see, you know, the, the guards standing outside Buckingham Palace and if they fall down, they're still at attention. And, and we see all that, but we forget that 
inside of that royalty, if you will, there, there is power and authority. You know, the queen could probably call for your head and somebody would come cut your head off. Fortunately, she doesn't do that much anymore. But power and authority in the hands of fallen man tempts and corrupts. Absolute power in the hands of a human being will corrupt him every time. Every time. It may take time, but they will eventually become corrupted. We see it in politicians, we see it in business, and we see it even in church leaders that are left unchecked by the Word of God and the people around them. They run amok. But in the hands of a holy and righteous God, it is a majestically beautiful thing. We know that God has no darkness in him. There's no sin in him. There's no turning in him. And he will always be holy and righteous. And he will always be the way he is. And it's a beautiful thing to see that majesty in him. And just so you don't forget when you think about this majesty, that in the book of Hebrews, we're reminded it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This morning I was reminded as I batted down a piece of Well, we thought it was a spider, but it turned out to be a piece of ceiling tile hanging by a thread. Been a spider, I still would probably have left. Um, And this thread was hanging, a little tiny piece of just whatever. And I was reminded that Jonathan Edwards says that the sinner is hanging over hell, the fires of hell, as if it were on a spider's web, a very thin thread. And to fall into the hands of the living God is a terrifying thing. So this morning, as we move into this passage, let us not forget our world is full of kingdoms and domains, rulers and leaders, usurpers and overthrowers. We elect presidents, kings and queens are coronated, prince and princesses are born, but all of them are temporary by their very nature, their mortality. They're going to die. Everybody that comes on this planet dies, but God never dies, and there has never been another universal king. God has always reigned above and supreme over all creatures and all causes. The writer of this psalm is making it crystal clear that the Lord reigns. Not a question, not a a doubt, not an apostrophe. This is an absolute exclamation point in Scripture that says, the Lord reigns reigns. We've never had a king. We've never had someone who reigned ultimate authority over us. So the idea of a king is kind of different to us. But understand that the king has complete authority. He can do whatever it is his heart desires. And God's heart is the desire to bring men to him, to glorify him, to change their lives and to share his gospel message with the rest of the fallen world. We serve a righteous and holy king. Also, it teaches us about one of the primary doctrines that the church has, it's the eternality of God. There's something about a God that, about our God that has always kind of, be honest with you, has always kind of left me in a bit of a question. I don't fully understand eternality. I, I mean, I can kind of understand looking forward and and kind of backwards, but how many of you understand that life starts and life stops? There's a beginning and there's an end. And somewhere in the middle, you just work your life away till you get to the end. Okay, you just, life has starts and stops. We're, We're finite beings. God, 
never had a beginning. He has always been. Before the earth was a dark and void little black ball in space, God was in complete and total control. Just remember when we move through this, God has promised and God keeps all of his promises, not only the good stuff, but also the stuff we don't want to think about. There are some things in scripture that are pretty horrifying when we think about them. And God has promised and God keeps his promises to do just those things. The Lord reigns, verse one, he is robed in majesty. The idea of majesty comes across with sovereign power and authority. He is by far the most exalted. <coughs> Think about what Lucifer did. Lucifer said, I will be like the most high. I will be exalted above him. I'm gonna come, I'm gonna knock him off his throne. I will be like the most high. And God put Satan in his place and he fell. Became, well, Lucifer fell and became Satan. God is the supreme in his authority. There is no other. There's no guy down the hallway that you have to check with. They asked one of our presidents one time what it was like to be the most powerful man in the world, and he said, I don't know. He said, there's a guy down the hallway that tells me where I'm going to go, who I'm going to see, and what we're going to talk about. The president has, has since died, and it's a shame. But nobody tells God what he is doing or how he's going to do it. He is the supreme in his authority. He has absolute authority, unlimited in its extent. God can do anything he desires to do, anything that is within his character. There's only one thing in Scripture God cannot do. Do you know what that is? Scripture very clearly says there's one thing God cannot do. God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. So if God tells you he's going to do something in his word, you can trust that he's going to do it. His majesty and authority are of his own autonomy. In other words, it wasn't given to him. He didn't earn it. It can never be taken, and he alone is the only source of authority and power. He acts out of his omnipotence, his all-powerful. He acts out of his omniscience, his all-knowing. He acts out of his omnipresence. He's everywhere. You cannot escape him. Isn't that what Jonah found out? You can't run and hide from God. You can't even hide in the belly of a great fish. You can't escape him. Paul, he tried to hide in a boat, right? What wound up? Wound up in the water because God knew where he was. His acts are for his own glory. He acts righteously, never sinning. And by absolute certainty, God never fails. Are you trusting God to do something in your life that Scripture has proven God is going to do? God will do that. I'm not going to tell you that God's going to make you rich because, frankly, side note, I think, I think riches can be a curse. I think having a lot of money can be a curse. And God has blessed me with not having a lot of money. Okay? And some of you know what that's like. Some of the happiest people I've ever known have been dirt poor because they trusted in God. They allowed God to nourish to them. I think of Pastor Wilfred Mboko. The man didn't have two Haitian Gorda? Gorda together, which is together about a penny or something, not much. But that man smiled more, he laughed more, he loved deeper, he sought God's will. I'd never met a man that was so happy in my entire life. And yes, he had struggles. And he knew God was going to do a great work in his world. Remember from the book of Job, I found myself referencing back to the book of Job quite a bit this week. If you've never taken time to study the book of Job, please, my friends, my brothers and sisters, spend some time in the book of Job. 
And remember as you're reading it, Job doesn't know how the story ends. We do, Job didn't. Job 38 says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this darkness counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line upon it? Oh, what were in the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? You see, God in his ultimate authority set the earth exactly as he wanted it. There's no mistakes. There's things in, our, in nature that make no sense. There are things that we see every day in the news that make no sense. But rest assured that God has absolute authority, absolute power, and he is the one that set those things in place. I don't understand mountaintops. I really don't. And I really don't understand why anybody would want to climb one. But I know God put them there for a reason. That's why God does what he does for his glory and for his honor. And then the Lord clothed and girded himself with strength. Nothing God has ever created has been destroyed without his direct approval. I did some reading this week because I had, I had a scientist or an engineer one time kind of chastise me because I made a, a statement about something being destroyed. And he said, you know, Paul, matter can never be destroyed. I went, so are you telling me the stuff they had around the first atomic bomb, that steel and stuff, when it went off, it just didn't go away? He goes, no, it's around here somewhere. It's just in a different form. I said, well, that's a cop out. And he said, nope, matter can never be destroyed. It is still here, just in a different form. It may not show up like steel. It may be in an atomic particle somewhere, but it's still here. So everything God has created, unless he sovereignly desires it to be destroyed, will always be here. If God has set in stone something that is to be or not to be, you can trust that that is how it will be. He alone is the strength that holds all things together. Let's go, um, follow me with me to the book of Colossians. We use this when we talk about the person of Christ, and I think it's only fitting at this time to do so. Chapter 1, verse uh, 15 through 17, if I've got it correct. Paul writing, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all, what does all mean? All. All things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All, which means all, things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God has the supreme authority. He has girded himself with strength, and he alone creates, and he alone keeps things spinning. Jesus Christ, while he walked the face of this earth, was still very much God and very much controlling the world. Just because he took on human form doesn't mean he was any less God. Don't ever let anybody tell you that he wasn't. Verse 2, the Lord reigns eternally. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. God didn't have a first day on the job. How many of you had first day on the job? You show up and everybody else knows where the break room is and they know where everything's at. I've had thousands of first days on the job, and I always hated them. They're kind of fun, but they're always kind of confusing because there's always that one guy that wants to, he wants to send you the wrong way. 
you know, say, hey man, where, where's the restroom? And they send you down the hallway to the offices or when you were in, remember your first day at high school, you asked where such and such room was and the senior went, it's through that door and that happened to be the boiler room. Not that that ever happened to me. When I first came to, to know Christ, I really struggled with the fact that God didn't have a beginning and will never have an end. Because like I said earlier, everything has a beginning and an end. This service had a beginning and somewhere down the line it'll have an end. We'll finish. Everything starts and stops, but God doesn't. Everything I knew about life and death and humanity flew against what I read about God having a start and not having a start, pardon me, and not having an end. And it took a great leap of faith and much prayer for me to begin to understand that it's okay if I believe that God never had a beginning because Scripture teaches that. Scripture teaches that God doesn't have a start. Consider Genesis 1-1 and then lay it down next to John 1-1. There's no lineage for Jesus. We don't get a Jesus, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. We get rather what they did in the book of Genesis, what Moses recorded, which was in the beginning was God. The same thing with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why was it that way? Well, John wrote the book of John for the world because the cosmos, the world, they weren't interested in lineages as much. He wanted them to know that here, here is this one that came in the flesh and he's God. He, didn't, he had a physical beginning, but he did not have a spiritual beginning. He has always been. We believe we call that the eternality of God. The book of Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those of you that have served and walked with Christ for many years know that he hasn't changed. He's not political. He's not hip on the latest fad. He doesn't follow the latest trends in worship or publications. He doesn't have a YouTube account. He doesn't have an Instagram page. And frankly, I wish he did have an email account because there's questions I'd like to ask him. But you know what? He's going to answer them in due time. It's my faith that keeps me going that says, yes, God will someday make all of these things right. Do I understand why God allows the righteous to suffer? No, I don't. But I trust in the fact that because of his very nature, that's his plan for the glorification of himself. Okay, That's the way it is. God in his eternity sees things much differently than you and I do. Mind you of this, God has already seen the day you die. He's seen you dead. God is there in the future, just like he is now. And he reigns just as much a million years from now as he did a million years ago. Or if you believe the evolution is 750 bazillion years ago, which I don't. The Lord reigns over struggles. The floods have lifted up. Oh, Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. There's a lot of conversation about what these verses mean. Some commentators have said this is a reference back to the flood of Noah and the way the, the waters broke up from the deep and the, the vapor canopy fell and the raging waters and the storms and, and how they lashed at the boat and they destroyed everything but those people on the boat and, and those animals that God had put sovereignly in that ship. And some have said it's, it's a picture of God's authority over nature and, and I buy that. I think that's a good thing because God does have authority over nature and that his voice and his power and his authority supersedes anything that nature can throw. Not only the storms of nature 
not only are there storms of nature a thing to deal with, but they're also tools that God uses. Have you ever looked at nature the way God looks at it as a tool? Think about it. God's used water to discipline the world. He has authority over water, Noah's flood. One of my favorite Old Testament passages, 1 Kings 18, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah's up on the mountainside. He tells the prophets of Baal, let's, let's build two altars and you cut your, your cow or your bull and cut it in half, put it there, and I'll put mine over here. And, and whoever can call down fire from their God, they'll, then we'll know that that's truly God. And those guys, they danced around all day and cut themselves and did all kind of weird stuff and nothing happened. And Elijah said, go get me some water. And he puts a whole bunch of water on the wood and the, the cow, so the whole thing's floating like in a little moat. And then he says, God, if you be God, send fire down. And fire came down and consumed everything in his offering pit, consumed the cow, the water, and the whole thing. God used fire as a tool to prove who he was. God is above the events of nature. And of course, the earthquake that opened the tomb when Christ was resurrected. God shakes the world. Isn't it amazing how man wants to write all those things off, but if you stop and look at them, every time there's a natural disaster, what happens? People ask one question, why does God let this happen? God lets those things happen for his glory. We don't understand it, but we have to trust it. Once again, we go back to the book of Job, and I love, the, I love the book of Job. It's just a fascinating study. In chapter 38, verses 22 and 23, God speaking to Job again says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the time of war and battle? Think about it. God said, I got a warehouse full of this stuff. I don't know about you, but a couple of flakes of snow is about all I ever care to see again. God says he's got a warehouse full. And then if you look at Revelation 16, 21, it promises that in the tribulation, God's going to send 100-pound hailstones. Have you seen what a golf ball-sized hailstone will do to a car? How about to an airplane or a barn or a field of crop? How about corn and soybean? How about an apple orchard? A 100-pound stone? It's coming through the roof. Imagine God has ultimate control, ultimate authority, supreme authority, and he has a warehouse full of this stuff waiting to use for judgment and sometimes for blessing. Can't hardly imagine a 100-pound hailstone. That's just that's going to be horrifying. I'm glad I won't be here. Can't even imagine how big it would be. The size of a piano, maybe? Going to have to call somebody to fix your roof. Others have said maybe it's a reference to the challenges and battles that God's children will endure. You ever felt like in your faith you were awash, you were out to sea, and you were in a boat all by yourself and you're just getting beat up from all sides? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you were alone? Like you were the sole survivor? Kind of like Elijah said. Elijah said, Lord, you know, there's only just me left. And he said, nah, there's a bunch in the cave you don't know about. But sometimes it seems as if we are the only ones in the world is struggling to kill us. I think we can apply some of that to this passage without going too far off base. Since the fall of man, there has always been those that oppose God's work. They do all they can to oppress the message of God and to kill the messengers of God's redemption and love. We encountered it in Haiti. 
the witch doctor came, wanted us to pay to be there. He would have certainly not enjoyed hearing about Jesus Christ. How many of you go to work and you see people around you that at the very instant, very mention of Christ's name, you can just feel their hair on their back of their neck stand up and they're ready to fight and tell you, we don't want to hear that stuff here. Those are the people that need it the most. As I look at this, I think what the writer is saying, this is, is a reminder that God is over nature, but also that in our world, we're going to face these floods, these battles, these raging waters. And if you think about things in God's economy, God uses these events for his own glory. Let's just use, there's three that I thought of. Moses and Pharaoh, the greatest picture of the providence of God in all of Scripture. God promises a redeemer. He sends the redeemer. Pharaoh's daughter digs him out of the water, out of the, the bulrushes, and raises him in his own home, figures out who he is, sends him away. Educates him, trains him, top of the line, Harvard, MIT, double PhD, the guy's the sharpest knife in the drawer. Sends him away, and what happens? He really is the deliverer. He comes back and I think we know the story because we've all seen the Ten Commandments on TV, right? God's providence. God says, oh, you want to destroy him? Watch this. Watch this. How about the Romans and in the time of Christ? They have this thing called Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. Rome, Rome and as evil as it was, did things to help further the gospel in spite of themselves. Number one, there was a common language. There was a common currency. And they built these fabulous things called roads. And the roads were intended to take the Roman army into the world to help conquest and control the world. But on that same road traveled the gospel. The gospel went out on the Roman's road. And why do you think we talk about the Roman's road from the scripture from the book of Romans? And then as, as horrible as it is, Nazi Germany and Israel. To the persecution and the evil acts of Nazi Germany, NATO put Israel back on the piece of land God had promised them. Pretty horrifying, isn't it? But yet God uses the unsavory for his own, his own glory. When you're afraid and your enemies are assailing you, my brothers and sisters, I want you to run to 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety or your cares upon him because he cares for you. God cares about you. You are not insignificant. You are hugely important to him. And whether you are six or 106 and you know Christ and you have a relationship with him, he cares deeply about you. He cares as much about you as he does about me and every other person in this room. He can have split allegiances. He can be faithful to all of us. And then God reigns, the Lord reigns in holiness. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. We're reminded that God's testimonies are fully, fully confirmed. Everything God has said he would do has either completed or is in the process of completing. He never forgets a promise, never backs out on a covenant, and never abandons his children never abandons his children. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of comfort in that, to know that no matter where I go, no matter what I face, God is with me, that God is there to help me and to guide me. It has been cleverly said that God says what he will do and then does what he has said he is going to do. Scripture is replete of instances with God fulfilling his word. 
But holiness is something in our society we don't see much of. We don't talk much about it. Um, <coughs> it's one of those traits that man's not really hip on anymore. And, and I just want you to know it's not, it's not living a foot off the ground or, or walking around so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. Okay, you, you still have to be involved with the world to some degree. As most of you know, I'm a construction worker by trade. And pretty much some of the most vile, um, evil, nasty men I've ever met in women in my life work in the skilled trades. Simple fact of the matter is we couldn't get jobs anywhere else, most of us. They would have fired us. And I can't not go to work, at least not for another, another 35 days. And I have to go to work. I have to make money. I have to pay my bills. I have things I have to do. So I can't just isolate myself. But what I can do is I can learn to live in a way that brings glory to God through a lifestyle of holiness. It's to be the gold standard in our lives. Let, let me give you some examples. To live a holy life is to forgive. To forgive those that have wronged us. To those that have hurt us. To those that have cut us deeply. Whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual. To those that have done damage to us. Is to forgive. And to say, okay, I'm gonna struggle with forgetting but I'm gonna forgive because God has commanded me to do so. It's to love those who hate us. It's to extend that love of God to those that you know deep down inside hate us. And that's not easy either. It's to go that extra mile, if you will, to carry the Romans pack that extra mile. It's to be grace extending and kind. Kindness is a lost art nowadays. You know, it's, it's not hard to be kind to people. Some people make it difficult, but it's not hard to do. Hold a door for someone. Speak to them in friendly tones. Just do things to them that we used to just call common courtesy. Just be kind to people. Give them a reason to smile. You might get an opportunity to share the reason why. To care for those who would misuse you. To give to those who cannot do for themselves. To love each other as we love ourselves. The world would be a different place if we all treated everybody the way we wanted to be treated. To love God with all our hearts, all our minds, and all our soul. To love his word and to make it our spiritual feast and sustenance. To be totally consumed by it. To be holy is to be Christ-like. And that is the lifestyle that is befitting of God's house, I might add. Your house as well. We've got some ideas I want to drop in your heart here as we finish. Don't be frightened away from God. No matter what you read in Scripture, don't be afraid to go to God. Don't get run off by fear. Yes, God is going to judge. But God loves the sinner who repents. To the sinner who comes to him in faith and says, God, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. Restore my heart to you. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the 2 Corinthians 5.17, God restores and renews. But seek him and draw near to him and rest in his power. Rest in his authority. Rest in his kindness. Rest in his majesty. When foes and, spiritual, foes and fears prevail, carry them to God. 1 Peter 5 again. 
carry them to God. Take your woes and your problems and your struggles to God. He wants to hear from you. He really does. He's not like the guy that calls your house at 2 o'clock in the morning just to talk. God wants to hear from you. He wants to know your heart. He wants to know what you're thinking. He already knows it, but he wants you to tell him. You're sitting here this morning. God's reading every one of us like a blank page or like an open page. He knows what's on all of our hearts. He knows what's on all of our minds. He knows what we're thinking. He knows that we're all probably hungry and ready to go to lunch. But he knows all those things. So do yourself a favor. Tell him. Finally, remind yourselves of this. Nothing will prevail against the church. I'm watching them burn churches in Canada. It's tragic, but those are just buildings. This structure, for all it's worth, just a pile of lumber. God will burn this thing to the ground someday. The church is not the building. The church is the people that's in it. The church will prevail over the evils of man. Nothing can come between you and your communication with God. Nothing. It may lock you up in the deepest, darkest dungeon or throw you back in the belly of a great fish or lock you up in a deep, dark communist country. Guess what? They can't stop you from talking to God. They can't stop the believer from communicating with God because God himself is everywhere. And finally, his word is truth. And anything and everything that opposes it is a lie. You can apply whatever you want to it. You can give whatever term you want. But if it comes against the word of God, if it flies in the face of the word of God, if it is contrary to what is contained in these 66 books, it is a lie. I'm going to tell you the truth. Men are born, humans are born in two varieties, men and women. Okay? There is no middle ground. You are one or you are the other. Don't let anybody tell you, well, God, I think God wanted me to be what I'm not. What God wants you to be is repentant, he wants you to be redeemed, and he wants you to be honest and loyal in your service to him. The majesty of God, we oftentimes forget that in that majesty, that wonderful picture of heaven, and I'm sure all of us have this picture in heaven, we have this idea that in heaven we have God sitting on this great white throne and streets of gold and the pearly gates and the four and twenty elders and the angels overhead with halos, whatever, playing harps, floating around on clouds, doing all that stuff. We have that picture in our head, right? Beautiful music, it's all 72 degrees, life's great, we're all skinny, we're young, God, we have our hair back, we all have that idea, right? Okay, I don't think so. It may work for me, I don't think it will. Simple fact of the matter is, in that majesty, that picture we have of God sitting upon his throne in heaven, is the greatest single source of unlimited power that man could ever possibly dream. God contains it all on that throne. And if we focus only on the external, the beauty of it, and look beyond the power and the authority that God has sitting on that throne, then we are doing a disservice to him and lying to ourselves. The Lord reigns, period. Over your life, my life, your neighbor's life, the guy down the street, the people in San Francisco, all those things that are going on in our world, God is still very much in control. Can't escape. Death doesn't get you away from God. As a matter of fact, death puts you right in front of the throne. Those that have said death is a great release had a big surprise when they got there. <laughs>